Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Mirielle Loda. She's a senior marketing executive and a thought leader with more than a decade of experience solving a lot of different business problems and more importantly, delivering sustainable growth for direct-to-consumer as well as B2B companies. So most recently, Mirielle was the chief marketing officer of Sightline Payments. They're a top US payments provider, specifically for sports betting, which is an area that just absolutely just exploded the past few years. You can't watch a game and the number of ads during the Super Bowl, this is going to be an exciting area to be able to talk about for sure. And they also support payments for the casino marketplace. And prior to that, she was a global head of brand and marketing at Western Union, a brand that all of us have heard of with a long history of of service and trust. And her previous experience prior to that was at Unilever and Nestle. So I'm really, really excited to be able to introduce today's guest. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, happy, so happy to have you on today. One question that I have for a lot of our guests is you obviously work in marketing today and you help companies grow or continue their growth. Was this a purposeful decision that you made in your career to go into marketing or is it something that you ended up doing and not necessarily planning to do at a young age? How did that journey happen for you? I initially wanted to be a professional translator. I personally have a great fondness for language and language in the broader sense. The words that we use, the tone that we use, the way in which we describe things, the imagination that words can trigger and the inspiration that words can trigger with people. And when I was about 16 years old, my dad didn't speak a word of English at the time. My dad is French, Italian, and he didn't speak a word of English at the time. And he set me up to shadow a translator for a week. And the outcome of that week was that is not a career I want to pursue, largely because I felt that I had no opportunity to contribute my own ideas. And I started looking into what kind of environment would give me an opportunity to both listen to other people's opinion, but also contribute my own and together deliver solutions, deliver ideas that can kind of move the world forward if you want. And that's really how I ended up in marketing. I think that from by the age of 17, I made the decision that marketing and international marketing in particular was the path that I wanted to pursue. And that is really what I've been doing ever since. Yeah. And you've worked for so many global brands, right? Like these are not just either US-based brands or brands locally in one even region or geo. What do you think of the big takeaways would be for somebody listening here on when you say international marketing, how does that differ from local business marketing or even like single country marketing? 
I think the challenge in international or global marketing is really trying to find the right balance between what are the commonalities across all of these different markets and what are the points of references that we can find that unite mm -hmm. people around the world, consumers around the world, whether they are businesses or they are individual consumers. And in doing so, not to dilute the proposition to the lowest common denominator, but also identifying what are the cultural references, what are the local references that you need to keep in your marketing strategy to be credible, to be relevant, to be authentic. And that really finding that balance is always a tight rope because the necessity of efficiencies tends to drive people to find as many commonalities as possible. And very often that's a kind of a danger zone at some point where by doing that, you almost completely neutralize what makes the local environment rich and relevant to resonate with consumers, whether they are, as I say, individuals or businesses. And I love that challenge. I love that equilibrium that we need to find between being efficient and being effective. And these are my two mantras, always looking for both effectiveness and efficiency. And when you do global marketing, you do this on a larger scale and you do this typically with a much broader set of consumer data, consumer insights, and consumer propositions that you have to develop and bring to market. That's such a great point. I've seen so many businesses have success in a Western country and think that they can drive the same level of growth simply by translating content and putting something in a different language or because their product has been in North America and the US and Canada, and that's gone so well that the assumption is going to an Australia or a New Zealand would be as easy as penetrating somewhere like Canada. But that really isn't the case. And even though we're all humans living in different countries, our values are different. How we interact with each other is different. How we prioritize our time, how we prioritize our money, the relationships with family and friends are different country to country. And I think one of the areas, especially in digital marketing, that this becomes so prevalent is the way that people use their phones and the way that people pay for things in different countries are so different. And I think the first example that almost anybody who's traveled internationally knows about is just how prevalent an app like WhatsApp is outside of the US, right. how that could fundamentally be like one of the top three apps that somebody uses every single day and you could live in the U.S. for a decade, not use WhatsApp, or potentially not even have heard of WhatsApp. That's true. And I think the additional challenge is how do you stay true to your brand? How do you stay true to your DNA at a brand and at a product level, and yet find ways of adapting it and kind of tweaking it and making it relevant? And there's always a little bit of a pendulum between the centralization and decentralization. And all of the global organizations that I've worked for, whether it was Unilever, whether it was Nestle, whether it was Western Union, that challenge always comes up. And the pendulum seems to swing a little bit depending on who's in charge of the organization and also depending a little bit on macro trends that are happening where people tend to veer more towards a centralization and a one size fits all with all of its pitfalls and 
other times, organizations tend to swing to more towards a greater sense of localization and decentralization with a lack of efficiency very often and the risk that your brand effectively becomes a local brand and it, it isn't quite joined up across all of these different geographies. So I love that both intellectual and very practical challenge in how do you execute a global marketing strategy in a way that makes the most of all of the opportunities at a local level. And for me, that's really what I thrive on. And I've got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge in doing all of these different things. And I think Western Union particularly was probably the greatest challenge. Western Union is present in something like 220 countries and territories. Most of them are non-standard. They're not your typical market because the money flows from more developed countries to less developed countries. But the target customers or the target consumers, even in a country like the United States or the UK, you are talking to people who come from the Philippines, people who come from China, people who come from the Latin American continent, people who come from Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, or the Middle East or Africa. And therefore, you need to have a great depth of understanding of their background, their cultural references, what they're taking from home when they come to a host country, if you want, the country where they're settling in, because that's still their frame of reference. So even marketing in the US is not marketing in the US to your traditional American audience, is marketing in the US to a sub-segment of that audience with their own references, their own language. And I'm not just talking about the language they speak, but the codification of their frame of reference from a cultural standpoint is something that you really have to ingest and integrate and become very, very comfortable and confident in in order to be effective in your marketing. How do you balance that well? Because when you take a look at the argument between centralization and decentralization, I've worked in organizations that have been on opposite sides of that. There's headquarters that is in a different country than where we're launching, and there's a playbook that has worked well. You have a local team, oftentimes with those local insights, who in a heavily centralized environment don't feel like their voice is being heard, but yet they might not have the authority or the credibility or the right relationship and the collaboration to be able to hit that middle ground where you're taking the best of both worlds of a playbook that is proven, but combining that with local insights and tailoring that marketing where appropriate. So I've sat on both sides of that fence. I've been in the central team and I've been in the local team. My approach to this is a lot of dialogue and a lot of collaboration. And I think that over the years, I have developed quite a robust process on how to do this by effectively defining a charter and defining a group of people who are going to provide the inputs, who are going to provide the validation, who are going to provide the feedback so that we can find the right balance. But we can also challenge each other. I think that there is always a necessity to have an open dialogue because there is a tendency at the law market to say, my market is different from everybody else. And often you need data to either validate or invalidate that, or you need to at least have the openness to test things yep. in a controlled way with a lot of measurement so that you can validate, is it true or is it just a hypothesis or is it just an assumption? And if it is an assumption, to what extent is that a reality? 
And can we find headways in creating those more unified playbooks that are going to work across multiple markets? The other way I've done this is by clustering markets. So rather than having just individual pieces, you find commonalities in a subgroup of markets. So you don't necessarily look for a global unified solution that everybody can adopt, because I think that's probably unrealistic. But there's probably some commonalities across several markets, let's say five or six different markets, sometimes up to 10 markets, where there's enough commonality that you can find that common ground to create a unified playbook. But all of that requires a lot of collaboration, a lot of communication, an openness to being challenged both ways. So nobody has the single truth. Everybody has a little piece of the jigsaw. And by bringing all of these together, I think you come up with much better solutions. I think fundamentally behind that is great leadership, right? The ability to be open-minded and not come in with this mentality of because I did this here and I owned it and I grew it, that can automatically translate. I've seen some instances even where the expansion territory tests something, they learn something, they see some results, and it can even be brought back to the primary market and actually be something that is a successful best practice that grows through that primary location geography as well. What I love about what you're saying is that letting the collaboration exist and the open-mindedness to test, but to live by the data and essentially make the decisions to scale or doing something because the data is showing that it's working and not necessarily because of other dynamics that might be more interpersonal related within the team. Absolutely. And I think the point that you make around, there may be something that's working really well in a local market that can be amplified and that can be scaled up across multiple markets. That is something that very often people underestimate and don't pay enough attention to. I really, really, truly believe that ideas can come from anywhere, from anyone at any point in time, and that no idea is too small to be dismissed. And mm-hmm. I spend an incredible amount of time in my roles working with the local teams, in actual fact, sitting in their offices, being part of the team and problem solving on their problems with them, where I'm not from the central team or I'm not the boss or I'm not the leader of the team. I'm simply another brain, another set of ears, another set of opinions or hypothesis, another way of looking at the data where we can problem solve together. In fact, problem solving as a team is the one thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning. I love nothing more than to work on other people's problems with them for the benefit of everybody in the organization. And I think that is probably as a leader, my one defining quality, which is I really go out of my way to really integrate myself into local teams to one, have that rapport, have that open dialogue, but also so that I can really talk from a point of view of having some understanding. And I don't claim to have the depth of understanding, but actually putting myself in their shoes and really really working on their issues for their benefit is one way in which I earn credibility and respect and trust from the Mm -hmm. local teams, especially if I'm located in a central position in the United States, where there is a little bit of a tendency to say, we know better and we can spread, if you want, our approach to the rest of the world. And I think really inversing that and approaching it from the other point of view and finding those gems in all of these local markets 
markets of teams that are doing fantastic work and then really looking at how can that be taken more broadly across multiple geographies is something that I spend a lot of time doing. Your role at Western Union, you know, you were global head of brand and marketing, their global team in over 20 different markets. I remember your annual marketing budget was 165 million globally. An environment that we are in this year, there's a lot of unease about possible recession, a pullback on the economy, interest rates continuing to rise. As a marketing leader in uncertain economic time periods, what are the large like strategic decisions and planning and backup plans that you think a leader should have who's running a marketing organization today? So my approach, and certainly when I was at Western Union, my approach was always to start with the bottom up which is really looking at the individual markets and the local teams and looking at, first of all, what contractual agreements have we made with some of our partners and some of our distributors so that we can honor those contractual agreements. And then over and above that, where are we going to get the greatest return over what period of time? And having a balance between short-term return and longer-term return is absolutely critical to make sure that we guarantee the health of the company in the short term because you need fuel in the tank in order to continue investing. But you also need some investment for the longer terms and the macro trends that are going to shape the world in the next five to 10 years and really making sure that we have the right balance. And my bias is probably 70% towards short-term return and 30% towards longer-term return for the very reason that if the company is not healthy this month, this quarter, this year, then there's going to be discussions about budget cuts. There's going to be discussions because if the revenue or the profit lines are depressed, then it's very, very difficult to justify in continuing to invest without that short-term return. So I always try and find the balance and find the right metrics and really looking at attribution modeling, really looking at econometric modeling, really looking at the quality, not just the quantity of the customers that we are bringing in. So looking at both the revenue and the profit in value, not just in volume, so that we can make sure we have all the right financial metrics around those investment decisions and we can all make informed decisions. I think for me, the most important thing is having that quality conversation as an executive team where we are all understanding what are the metrics of success that we are setting ourselves up against And how do we track that over time? And if anything changes, how do we have that discussion? What decisions do we need to make differently? And it's a little bit like driving a car. Of course, you have a long-term destination. You know where you want to go, but you're constantly looking in the mirrors. You're constantly steering a little bit left, a little bit right to adjust your trajectory. You're constantly accelerating and braking to finding the right and the optimal ways of driving the car. So for me, I really see the marketing budget management as a fundamental discipline of a marketing leader. And I am personally very, very financially astute when it comes to looking at the numbers and tying the marketing results to the business objectives and to the PL as well as the balance sheet. Yeah, the collaboration with your finance lead or your finance partner there is just so key that you're telling the same story, looking at investments the same way, and not taking a generalized approach just because there's cuts being made across the business doesn't necessarily mean every single line item 
might be cut. And in any large organization, there's always going to be waste. And so really, I like what you're talking there in terms of just reviewing all of the agreements, agencies, software, tools, headcount, and just understanding what of that is driving good use today and what wouldn't make a difference if it was cut first. And you know, I've seen times as well where even with lowered budgets, there might be an increased investment in one business unit that should be driving growth and potentially cutting from a different business or a different product, depending on where investments should be made. So a lot of really great points there. I want to talk about a little bit about your time at Sightline Payments. You're the chief marketing officer at Sightline Payments. And Sightline has a business model that a lot of companies have, but a lot of marketers don't always talk about, which is the B2B to C business model. And, you know, the B2B to C business model, I've been in two different companies now that have had that business model. And it is some of the most complex messaging that you could possibly do because your client has customers and your customers are not necessarily directly your customers all the time. What were some of your big learnings from marketing that type of product compared to a Western Union? I think for me, the fundamental starting point of this is part of the contractual agreement with one of those partners is how are we going to market the product together? What channels, what messaging, what are the KPIs, what are the objectives, what are we investing together? I absolutely believe that both parties should put money in the pot so that we both have skin in the game. And the second thing is what data are we going to share? Because you're right, ultimately, the customers are their customers. We don't necessarily have a very direct relationship with these customers. And yet we need some of the data to make better decisions. So really having that framework at a contractual level is absolutely critical and being very clear on how we're going to manage this together. Do we need to to set up a marketing committee by which we have representatives from both organizations who come to the table monthly, who come to the table quarterly, who plan together strategically, but are also able to review the execution. And what are we agreeing to do together? What is the framework? What decisions can each organization make independently? What are the decisions that we need to make together? And having a governance process for agreeing what goes in the contract and for then tracking, measuring, and executing this with a lot of diligence and a lot of rigor so that both organizations have a partnership which goes beyond being simply a sales relationship. The marketing aspect of that relationship is also very, very important. And for me, that's really been at Sightline. Some of the work that I've done is really sitting down with some of our key distributors and having that framework, having that agreement, really understanding what are they trying to achieve strategically? What are we trying to achieve strategically? Where can we find that common ground? And how do we execute together and monitor, measure, track, course correct on a regular basis so that we can both achieve our desired outcomes. Yeah, and Sightline as well has this trait of a company where the ideal, quote unquote, ideal marketing job for a marketer is a market that has a lot of available customers. Sightline really focuses on a few select companies, but are massively growing brands. And Sightline has 
penetration into, I think, FanDuel, DraftKings, MGM, Caesar. I'm not sure how many, what the total addressable market is, but I can't imagine that it's more than 50 companies. How does that change your B2B marketing strategy with account-based marketing as opposed to large-scale marketing where you might be have an addressable market of thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies? I think at the time when I was at Sideline, we worked with about 80 different gaming operators. And one of the things that I was really working on and really trying to instigate is some kind of tiering approach where you have your key strategic accounts that effectively generate the majority of your revenue. But then you have your second tier accounts, which are probably a little bit smaller today, but have the opportunity to become key strategic accounts in tier one. And then you have your third one. And for each of these, you really need to define how much of the marketing investment are we going to put behind? How are we going to manage those relationships? How are we going to evaluate the return that we get from those individual relationships? Because in reality, with somebody like FanDuel, we might be in a good strategic place, but maybe with DraftKings, you know, we need to approach this slightly differently. And there may be some operators in tier three where we have a more exclusive relationship and therefore we can capture a bigger share of their customer base than in a non-exclusive environment with a FanDuel or a DraftKings, for example. So for me, really understanding and in a bit like you would do a consumer segmentation, doing a distributor segmentation, an account segmentation is also absolutely critical in understanding the nature of the relationships, the profitability of those relationships and the potential growth in each of these accounts, and then defining what is the marketing approach for each of these tiers and let that evolve over time. Of course, that needs to be reviewed periodically. That needs to be enriched. There needs to be more strategic discussions with each of these operators around what are they seeing, what are they doing, and how can we evolve together so that both our organizations can benefit from new trends and can benefit from new experiments. And I'd imagine this analysis and this structure has to be so important to stay aligned with the sales team as well in terms of the different tiers and both the marketing effort, but also the sales effort and the sales focus that matches at those different tiers and has a playbook for each of those different tiers. Yes, and the finance team too, because ultimately this has an impact on the PL. So one of the things that I was working on at Sightline was an operator level PL, because I think that we did not have enough financial information on how the sales and the marketing activities were providing a return at a PL level. And really having that individual account PL was an absolutely critical measurement of the success of our sales and marketing efforts. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, throughout these different roles, as you've grown as a leader, led different types of organizations. What have been the most influential insights that you've really uncovered about yourself? And how did that end up having an impact on your career path? So it's funny, it's something that I talk about a lot. I think at the beginning of my career, I had this idea that I needed to be great at everything. That as a leader of a team, 
I should really know everything about everything so that whoever reported in my team could trust me as a leader because I had all the knowledge and I had at least as much knowledge, if not more knowledge than they had. And I think probably one of the most important kind of insights in my career was understanding that it's okay for me not to be perfect at everything. It's for me, it's okay for me not to be an expert on every topic as long as I recognize that and as long as I'm open about it and as long as I recruit people reporting into me who have that level of depth of expertise and I give them the empowerment, I give them the remit, I give them the scope and I give them the support to really excel at what they're good at and that we can have an open dialogue where I can ask questions on things that I don't particularly understand without the fear of being looked at and kind of thought of as well, how can you be the leader of our team if you don't know this, 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 and this about this particular topic? So for me, the biggest insight has been being very clear as a leader on what are my kind of sparks, if you want, my gems, but also what are the areas where I'm comfortable not being the most knowledgeable person in the team, and I'm comfortable owning that, and I'm comfortable being open and vulnerable about it, and I'm comfortable hiring people who will come and effectively add, and together we make a great team. So this is less about me as an individual leader of knowledge it's more about me as a leader of people where I can recognize and I can give everybody an opportunity to shine, an opportunity to progress, an opportunity to demonstrate how good they are, because together, collectively, we achieve great results. And that understanding for me has been completely transformational in terms of how I've structured and recruited teams that happened about 20 years ago. And for me, the last 20 years have been very, very different in terms of how I've positioned myself as a leader. There's that mental transformation, that mental shift that happens for every single leader where you think back to the big early career, it's so easy to point a finger and say, somebody needs to fix that, right? This is not optimal and somebody should do something there. And there's a point, and I remember a leadership coach that I worked with in one of his seminars had said, there's a point that every leader hits where they realize that there is no somebody anymore, that someone is you. And that shift of putting the team's success ahead of individual success, putting the team's priorities ahead of your own individual priorities is, I think, a big eye-opener that every marketing leader at some point will go through because your mentality shifts, because at that point you understand that whether it's your idea or somebody else's idea on the team, that is the winning strategy. Identifying the winning strategy is the win for the team and not necessarily the originator. It becomes a lot easier to be able to give credit to others for doing really great work while taking ownership when something is not working well. And I love what you're sharing there in terms of that dynamic of being open and being vulnerable, because that's another area that as you grow as a marketing leader, as you expand to different countries, different products, different marketing channels, and quite frankly, as marketing technology changes, it's impossible to be able to keep up with all of the different changes that happen in marketing unless you are hands-on keyboard 
really in the weeds of that area. And I think that that's something too, that as marketing leaders grow into directors, VPs is almost this uncomfortable feeling because what made you successful in the past was being the best at what you did. Right. And knowing the technology inside and out and potentially even being the technical person who could implement it. And so the shift of not being that expert is just this such an uncomfortable feeling to get used to until that leadership occurs in the mentality of understanding that your role is to drive success through and with the team that you're building around you. And that's the reason why at the very beginning of our conversation, I talked about the thing that gets me out of bed more than anything else is problem solving. I love problems. Give me a problem. Because if everything is okay, then I don't really see where I can add value. Mm -hmm. But if there is a problem, for me, there's a difference between I feel ownership of the problem and the solution not as an individual, but as a contributor, as part of a wider team. And that's the reason why problem solving as a team, and that team is not necessarily just a marketing team, it's just a group of people who have, and it's best to have different perspectives, different skill sets, different ways of looking at it, so that you have a very rich tapestry of inputs to find the better solution. And I use the word better on purpose. Because there's always an opportunity to improve. So you never come up straight away with the best solution. You come up with what at that point in time is the better solution that you can find, given the information you've got and the time in which you're operating to solve that particular problem. And then you need to continue looking at it and you need to continue getting the data, getting the feedback, getting the inputs to say, is there a better way of doing this? And for me, being the switch between being an expert and being a leader actually happened quite early on in my career. Unilever is an organization that really gives people at a relatively young age and a relatively junior level a lot of empowerment and a lot of authority because you typically own the PL. So you are responsible for every line on the PL. I know it's called a marketing role, but it's really a PL ownership role for a particular business unit or a particular brand. And for that reason, you have to bring people from all different functions within the organization to problem solve together if you really want to create growth both at the top line and the bottom line and in order to do that you as a leader need to be vulnerable enough to say I don't know and I need the help of other people and that shift between I'm not the owner of the problem I'm the owner of the solution and I'm the owner of how we as a team are going to operate together to solve this. That is where for me, the kind of unlocking, if you want, of my mental perception of the role that I needed to play, where I kind of really started thinking, I don't need to be great at everything, but I need to be great at bringing together all the brains and all the people that can make it happen. And that for me has kind of really been my leadership style for the last 20 years or so. And absolutely incredible leadership style that takes a lot of vulnerability to be able to have. This podcast is called Destination CMO. We talk a lot about the journey to becoming a head of marketing, the journey to a CMO role. In the past two years, you've taken 
quite a pivot in your career from in-house marketing to becoming a consultant, a fractional CMO, sometimes it's called. Tell me about, as you were taking a look at your career path, CMO is kind of one role where there's not an entirely clear career path after CMO. For a CFO, they oftentimes jump into that CEO role as an operator. Many CMOs don't want to become a CEO, that they're not interested in that particular role. How did you think about what next and where to go and and how did that lead you into this fractional CMO type of work? I think initially it was not a particularly strong career choice, if I'm being completely honest. It was more a holding position. It was more, okay, so I've wrapped things up with Sightline. What next? Let me take a little bit of time to reflect upon, you know, what kind of industry I want to be in, what kind of organization I want to be in, how big, how small do I want to be with a large company? Do I want to be with a startup? What kind of CMO do I want to be? And whilst I was reflecting upon all of this, there were people asking me, saying, oh, we've got a project or we've got a strategic marketing challenge we'd like your help with. So I started doing that initially just to tie me over whilst I was looking for my permanent position. And then I just got into the headspace where I was thinking, actually, I'm really enjoying because problem solving is really at the core of what I love doing. Rather than just solving problems from one company, one team, one organization, maybe there is a world in which I can solve problems for a lot of different organizations, a lot of different companies, and a lot of different problems. And that variety is something that I really love because you get to work with a lot of different people. You are an external consultant, but I personally get very, very embedded with the teams that I work with. It's really, really important to me that I really go native and I really embed myself and I ingest the data and I ingest the problem so that I can help them better. The downside is sometimes I miss the execution. So there's, I kind of have to wrestle within myself around the fact that sometimes once you've kind of helped them and come with that better solution, the client very often will say, thank you very much. We're now going to go and execute on our own. And that sometimes is a little bit of a source of frustration for two reasons. One, because I get very attached. I get very attached to the team. I get very attached to the outcome. I get very attached to the company and the business overall. And two, because sometimes I feel that, as I said, you find the better solution, not the best solution. And you need to be as intent on problem solving and rapid succession and an iterative process of test and learn to find a better and better and better solution when you execute than when you did the initial phase of problem solving. So for me, I sometimes feel that I would want to stay a little bit longer to help. And some clients are more open to it than others. So that's a personal challenge I have to wrestle with around how involved can I stay with the execution when I was really only hired for the initial problem solving. But that's an evolving and something that I'm working on with my clients and I'm working on with my partners and making sure that I feel 
there is an element where I no longer add as much value. It's kind of like an S-curve. When you get to the top of that S-curve, you start feeling that maybe I'm not adding as much value as I could. And maybe that's a good time for me to pull away. And maybe I come back in six months or in a year and have another round at this. Yeah, the strategy becomes so much different when you're trying to essentially in I've heard a lot of fractional CMOs talk about their role and success in their role is really teaching because as an in-house marketer, you're there, you can make the nudges, you can make the corrections along the way. And it's almost the equivalent of a chef. You're like in the kitchen with somebody as they're cooking. Whereas like the fractional CMO work is closer to not necessarily having a hand in the kitchen but you're still writing up the recipe. You're maybe recording videos, like trying to sh- teach somebody this culinary technique, which is fundamentally a di- sometimes a different skill and a, and a different approach. At the it same is. time, I've heard some fractional CMOs say that what they love about that type of role is the number of challenges that you're given and the intellectual exercise of rapidly learning different companies, different models, different industries. And then being able to apply solutions. And so if you're a type of person that constantly wants to stay learning, that many feel like it's a really great way to be able to get that that broad exposure across a portfolio of companies, which if you ever go into whether you have a goal of becoming a business professor in the future or you go into the investing space or advisory space, having the experience from many companies oftentimes a lot stronger than just the experience from a single company. Absolutely. I think the other advantage of being a fractional CMO is that you really have to be very focused. If you're only working one or two days a week as a CMO, so to all intents and purposes, you are the CMO of the company. It's just you're not doing it five days a week. You're doing it two days a week. So you've got to be very, very focused on what are the challenges that you need to focus on fixing or solving or addressing or problem solving with the team on during that one or two days a week. And that's, I think, that sharp focus that this brings is something that I think is very, very valuable to both the individual, the team, and the organization overall, which is you can't really get distracted. You can't really go down rabbit holes. You've got to be very, very diligent, very focused on what are the highest priorities, what's going to make the biggest amount of difference, and what is the most effective and efficient way of gaining traction and solving this. And I think that is something that I thrive on. I absolutely thrive on kind of like that laser sharp focus and throwing everything I have at it. Yeah. If you think there's a lot of diminishing returns when you're working on something full time and you're trying to do too much, especially if it's 20 hours a week, 16 hours a week, you got to get really ruthless about prioritization, get really tight alignment across the rest of the team. And the CMO role, whether it's full-time or whether it's contract, is already the shortest tenure role in the C-suite. And so when you formally make that change from employee to contractor part-time, you got to be really intentional about making sure that the work that you're doing and the outcomes that you're driving are driving true results and are the right places to stay focused. 
one of the choices that I've made is to join a group of CMOs. So we call the CMO syndicates. And we are effectively a group of 10 and growing professional CMOs. We've all been CMOs. We all have over 20 years of marketing experience, over 10 years as a CMO in many different industries, many different types of companies, many different geographies. And we are here to support each other. So back to this point of, I might not have the knowledge on everything. I might not be an expert on everything. I have a group of people who have my back. So even if I'm the lead and I'm the fractional CMO for one organization, I have a group of people that I can tap into to support me, to problem solve with me if I am stuck. If the team of the client doesn't have the knowledge, I can tap into another group of people who are all very, very experienced and they're not consultants by trade. We've all been CMOs until fairly recently. So we have in-depth working knowledge of what it's like to be a CMO. And I love that blend of being an independent agent as well as having a group of peers effectively who can really provide that diverse thinking and that diverse skill set to support delivering a great outcome for one of our clients. Yeah, great point. And best of both worlds there in terms of flexibility and the income potential that the fractional CMO role provides. But still, I think like as humans, like we all want to feel part of a community, right? That's right. natural as humans. And so the ability to also be a part of a team and to be part of something bigger than yourself has to be satisfying as well. For those that are watching, those that are listening today that want to stay connected with you, where's the best way to stay in touch? LinkedIn is the best way to find me. I am a very purposeful networker. I love to connect with people. I love to read. I consume a huge amount of content, whether it be through podcasts, whether it be through LinkedIn, whether it be through reports, whether it be through communities. I'm part of about five or six different marketing communities because I love to ingest ideas. And those ideas inform my thinking and make me a better contributor for my team, for my colleagues, for the companies that I work with, my clients. So LinkedIn is really the best place to find me. Great. And we have your LinkedIn screen, LinkedIn URL up here on the screen. If you're watching this, if you're listening to the podcast, we'll include a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Destination CMO. It's been a pleasure to have you here. It's been super fun. Thank you very much, Vincent. If this episode has been valuable, if you found this episode insightful, please make sure to like and subscribe. Follow us wherever you are watching or listening to this. We'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.